Well, hey, everybody, so great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. I'm really honored to have you along for the ride. Uh, today, we get to continue a series that we launched last week called Why Follow? And it's all about why I'm convinced that everybody should follow Jesus in spite of. And, you know, like in spite of the questions that they may carry about some of the strange things described by the authors of the Bible. And in spite of the fact that followers of Jesus, uh, and I don't know if you've noticed, but we can be a little bit judgmental and hypocritical and politically polarizing. Uh, and, and in spite of the fact that there are really great questions about God and faith and life that, if we're honest, don't have great answers. I mean, in spite of all that, I firmly believe that everyone should follow Jesus. And during this series, I'm going to do my best to explain why. Okay, so I began last week by noting that whenever I find myself in a conversation with someone who's in the process of sort of deconstructing their faith because of their concerns and their doubts, they always ask me some version of this question. Uh, why would any modern rational person choose to follow Jesus? Like, why would any modern, rational person choose to follow Jesus? And I always respond to their question with a better question. At least I think it's a better question. And the better question goes like this. Is it possible that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John are reliable accounts of actual events? In, in other words, is it reasonable for us to trust that the authors of those New Testament accounts of Jesus' life recorded things that actually happened. Because if they did, then obviously what they say about Jesus is true. And in spite of all of our questions and concerns, Jesus is still very much worth following. Uh, and if I can get someone to come with me that far, then I always invite them to explore how a man named Luke began his account of the life of Jesus. And we checked this out in detail last week, but it's an account that hundreds of years after it was written was included in the New Testament of the Bible. So here's what Luke writes. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. He goes on, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. In other words, when we read Luke's account of the life of Jesus, what we're reading was originally a letter written by a first century Jesus follower named Luke that was addressed to another first century Jesus follower named Theophilus. And Theophilus would have been thrilled to receive an orderly account of the life of Jesus so that he could be secure in the knowledge of the things that he'd been taught about Jesus. Okay, so that said, I think it's worth noting that when Luke wrote this letter, he would have had no sense whatsoever that he was writing a part of the Bible, or even that there ever would be a the Bible, right? Like what Luke does in this letter is simply to document the life of Jesus after interviewing eyewitnesses of Jesus' life. And, and that's pretty cool because we know from other accounts that Luke knew Jesus' most famous apostle, Peter. And we know that he knew James, Jesus' brother. And, and he knew and had traveled with Paul, the man who wrote more than half of the letters that make up the New Testament of the Bible. And now here's why I think all that is so exciting. 
Because we have a copy of Luke's letter, because we can hold it in our hands in a very real sense, we have been invited, much like Theophilus, to hear the whole story of Jesus' life so that we too can maybe find certainty with regards to the things that we were taught about Jesus, so that we can know that what we believe about Jesus is anchored to something in history, specifically one extraordinary event that happened three days after Jesus died on the cross. And we talked about that last week. If you missed it, totally should check it out on the website. But with the rest of our time today, what I want to do is explore a really fascinating character from Luke's account who will point us to another reason why I think everybody should follow Jesus. Uh, The guy's name is John the Baptist. Uh, And in the narrative, Luke introduces us to John the Baptist with what can only be described as a stunning level of historical detail and more than a few words that are hard to say, so you have to bear with me, okay? Here's what Luke writes about John the Baptist. He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, you know, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judah, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Aturia and Traconius, which sounds like you need a cream if you got some of that going on. And, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and whatever that name is. Right, right? It's like he says, the, and then he goes on, he says, The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And the reason he tells us John, son of Zechariah, is because John was one of the most popular names in the first century. So this is the guy, John, of, son of Zechariah, is the guy we know as John the Baptist, but just notice the stunning level of detail. Like Luke clearly wants Theophilus to understand that what he's about to learn wasn't a once upon a time story. It was history, like real people, real places at real times. And so John, son of Zechariah, the man we call John the Baptist, wasn't just a character in a Bible story. He really lived. And in fact, if you permit me a nerd moment, I was super excited about this this week. John the Baptist actually shows up in writings outside of the Bible, including the most famous one from a Jewish historian named Josephus. So here's what Josephus tells us about John the Baptist 60 years or so after he was murdered. He writes this. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's armies came from God and was very just punishment for what he did against John called the Baptist. For Herod had him killed, although he was a good man, and had urged the Jews to exert themselves in virtue both as to justice and towards one another and reverence towards God. All that to say, when Luke introduces us to this character, John the Baptist, he's not making stuff up. He's like, John was a real dude. That's a technical term from the Greek, you understand, dude. Yeah. So, okay, back to Luke. As he continues his account, here's what Luke tells us. So the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So that's down in the south of Israel, down where the Jordan River meets the Dead Sea. He he said, he went into all the country around the Jordan, that's the river, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And now it's really easy for us to miss, but this whole preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins thing was a big problem for the Jewish religious leaders in John's day, because they managed an entire system by which sin could be forgiven at the temple in Jerusalem. And I brought an artist rendering of that temple, what it would have looked like. It was massive, and there was a ton of detail around how sins might 
be forgiven. And so when John begins to present an alternative mechanism for sin management, namely that people only needed to be immersed by him in water and then turn away from their sins in order to be forgiven by God, he was also indirectly suggesting that the temple system was no longer necessary or may soon no longer be necessary. John's message was that something new was on the horizon. Maybe said better, someone new was on the horizon. And God sent John to prepare the way for this someone by challenging people to turn away from their sins and to actually start living out the faith that they professed to believe. And here's what's so amazing. Uh, John's message resonated with first century Jewish people at least in part because in the first century, a special group of religious leaders had turned the temple in Jerusalem into a tourist trap, and everyone knew it. In fact, um, a man named Matthew has another account of the life of Jesus, and he tells us that everyone in the region of Israel that included Jerusalem and the temple came out to see and be baptized by John. And he has to be exaggerating there, but what's undeniable is that John's message resonated. He captured the attention of a whole bunch of people, so much so that the word of his work eventually reached the leadership in the temple in Jerusalem, and they decided to take a day trip down to the Jordan River to have a little chit-chat with John. And Luke records for us that um, as those leaders were approaching John and the crowd who had assembled to hear him teach and be baptized, John looks up, sees them in the distance, and screams at them, you brood of vipers. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And I mean, the other people standing there were probably like, John, dude, try the decaf, right? I mean, these are the professional religious guys. They're powerful. They're wealthy. They're influential. They're used to being respected, if not feared. They generally don't take well to be calling a brood of vipers. But that's what John calls them. He essentially says to them, listen, you're in a lot of trouble with God for the way you've corrupted his temple. And then he goes on. He says, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. And we're like, huh? <laughs> but in other words, don't for a moment think to yourselves, we're good with God because of who we're related to. John's like, that is not how this works. God cares about your hearts. And so Luke tells us that in this moment, you know, John points to the rocks that line the river's edge. And he says, I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. It's like John the Baptist was fearless and he was disturbing. He disturbed people on purpose. He was trying to disturb them out of the apathy of their self-made religion that left them out of sync with what God was about to do in the world. I mean, think about it. Like, if you've ever read those accounts of Jesus' life, you know, it gets to the end of Jesus' life and you may have found yourself wondering, like, who are all these Jewish people who are demanding that Jesus be crucified? Like, what is their deal? And if we were to ask John the Baptist that question, and we couldn't have because he would be dead at that point, he would say, listen, those are people who refused to repent from the corrupt and sinful system that they had created and were looking to perpetuate. They, they hadn't done what I told them that they needed to do. Namely, they hadn't produced fruit in keeping with repentance. They hadn't turned from their sins. And this is even more significant. They hadn't aligned their behavior with their beliefs. So John basically says to them, listen, you're not living out what you say you believe. You're actors, you're pretenders, you're hypocrites. 
And consequently, people who are far from God, who are looking to you to see what God is like, aren't able to understand his heart towards them, and that's a really big deal. So John was sent by God with a disturbing message to Israel's religious establishment that something new was about to be unleashed on the world, a new movement was about to be born in which someone's love of God would be demonstrated and authenticated not by following an endless list of religious rules, but by doing good things for other people. In other words, the days of an internalized vertical religion were coming to an end, and John, as he's proclaiming this, his audience understood his message. In fact, we, we know they did because of the question that they asked John following this conversation. It's a, it's a powerful question, and it's a question that changed everything for them. Honestly, it's a question that I think could still change everything for us 2,000 years later. In fact, if, if you're here this morning, and for one reason or another, you're in the process of sort of quietly deconstructing your faith, um, it's like it may be because you were never taught to ask this question, and as a result, over time, your faith sort of became stagnant, and then it slowly started to die, and, and you woke up one morning and realized that the faith that you have or the faith that you had wasn't a faith worth having, and you weren't sure that you believed anything anymore. And, and again, I think, I think this is something that can happen to all of us. Anytime like, our faith comes all, becomes all about our beliefs and not as much about our behaviors, like whenever we get into that space and whether we realize it or not, we've entered a dangerous space because our faith may slowly begin to die without us even realizing it. Okay, so what, what's the question that they asked John? What's that simple, powerful, transformational question? It goes like this. What should we do then? In other words, um, John, what should we do to prepare for what God is about to do in our world? What should we do in order to prepare so that when God does this new thing in our world, we can recognize it and be swept up in it and become a part of it? We don't want to miss it. And of course, in this moment, because John's sort of this, this prophet along the Old Testament lines of prophet, they were waiting for John to tell them to do something religious. But that's not what John said. In fact, his answer would have shocked them because it was so easy to understand. Here's what John told them. He said, you want to be a part of the new thing God's doing? Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. In other words, if you have two and someone needs one, give them one of yours. End of lecture. Don't even need to take notes, right? And they would have thought, wait, 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 what? John, you've just dissed the entire temple establishment, and now you're saying that all we need to do in order to be ready for the new thing that God is about to do in the world is to share? Like, dude, they taught me that in, in kindergarten or whatever it was back then, right? I mean, share, yeah. Like, no offense, John, but this doesn't seem very religious. Like, you can share anywhere. And John would say, exactly. <laughs> See, you've unintentionally become wound up in a form of religion that, that really isn't that important to God, and yet you've missed something fundamental and you've missed something critical. I mean, when when you see what God is about to do in the world, you're going to discover that he is about to share the greatest gift with the world ever given, his son. So, so if you see someone with a need, you can meet, meet it. Like whoever they are, 
wherever they live, whatever they believe, because this thing that God is about to do is exactly that. He's about to meet the needs of the entire world, needs that we can't meet on our own. And if you're not in that flow, if you're not living out that, you're going to miss it when he comes, because you're going to be trapped in a lifeless form of religion. Okay, so as John, Luke's account continues, he tells us something that, that from the perspective of first century Israel is pretty amazing. Here's what John tells us. He says, tax collectors also came to be baptized. And it's super easy for us to miss, like if you're just kind of cruising along, but, but this is astonishing. I mean, in the first century, everybody hated tax collectors. In fact, if you're reading the accounts of Jesus' life, every time bad guys show up, they're always described as tax collectors and sinners. It's almost like the sinners got together for a convention and voted to oust the tax collectors. Like, yeah, we're bad, but we're not tax collectors, right? So they had to form their own union. And so the tax collectors were hated because they essentially leveraged the power of Rome to steal money from their fellow Jews. And Luke records that even they have come to hear John. Apparently, like deep down, they knew that they were missing something. Like if there's a God out there somewhere and we don't see it in the temple system, but there's got to be more than this. Life is so unsatisfying. And so Luke describes this moment where the tax collectors came and one of them raises their hand and says, what should we do, John? What do you want us to do? And he just says this, don't collect any more than you're required to do. Again, you don't need to take notes. Very simple, right? Stop stealing, <laughs> And I love it. It's so basic. As John says, if you have a need, you, if you see a need, you can meet, meet it. And if, you, if you're stealing, stop it. Don't settle for what's legal and permissible. I know that's how it's done. Stop being so normal. Be exceptional. And so now as Luke continues, he tells us that as it turns out, it wasn't just general people that were there and religious leaders that were there and tax collectors that were there. There were actually some soldiers listening to John that day as well. And that is really interesting because these would not have been Jewish people. They were Gentiles. They were, they were from other nations that surrounded Israel. And generally, the people that signed up to be soldiers for Rome and Israel had never been to Rome, but they signed up because they, had, uh, they didn't like the Jews at all. And so apparently, because John was so compelling, they showed up, listened, and asked what they should do. And John told them, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. In other words, don't force people to pay you money in order to protect them. Rome is already paying you money to protect them. And I know it's what everybody does and I know you won't get in trouble, and, and, but, but you need to do what's right and you need to take care of people because on the horizon, God is going to do something unbelievable. He's going to sacrifice his one and only son in order to take care of people. And you want to be in the flow of that when it happens. So don't accuse people falsely so that they have to pay you off so they don't get in trouble for something they didn't do. Again, don't be normal. Be exceptional because there is one who is coming into this world who is going to choose to do something exceptional, not to extract justice, but to grant mercy and to allow his heavenly father to take out on him what he could just easily justify taking out on us. So prepare the way. Don't use your power to abuse the powerless. Use your power to protect the powerless. 
I'm telling you, John shows up 2,000 years ago in the wilderness, in the desert, down by the Dead Sea where the Jordan River connects, and, and he begins proclaiming this teaching, and it was unprecedented in human history. But here's the thing. I, I'm sure that the people deep down began to imagine a world like John described, a world in which people treated one another with dignity because in their world that didn't happen, and it didn't work, and they knew it. They wanted something better and so they were drawn to the light of John's message. They wanted to be a part of a society where those in power used their power to help those with no power. And, like, and this, this is what John pointed to, but then this is what Jesus embodied. In fact, a few years after John had this conversation, Jesus himself says to his first disciples, for even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served but to serve. And if anybody deserved to be served, it was Jesus. But he said, no, I, I'm taking the posture of a servant, and that's what I want you to do too. And to give his life, Jesus would say, my life is a ransom for many. And here's what's fun. You keep reading, and apparently this, uh, this, this teaching from John the Baptist was so good that people looked at him and said, you must be the Messiah. You must be the promised one, right? Because this is so compelling, and we, we want to be a part of this thing. And he's, he would look back and say, no way. Not even close. In fact, he said, I baptize you with water, like I'm dunking you in the Jordan, but one who is more powerful than I will come and the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In other words, I am not even worthy to untie the Messiah's sneakers, okay? He's that big a deal. And I'm telling you, you want to be ready when he comes. And so prepare the way. And how do you prepare the way? You do something with what you believe. Something that makes this world a better place. Something that moves the needle just a little bit. Something that benefits someone that God loves. And as it turns out, good news, they should be easy to find because God loves everybody. I'm telling you, this was a powerful message for them back then, and this is a powerful message for us now. I mean, as I, was, as I was thinking about this over the past few weeks, I began to think, like, what version of faith are we portraying to our world? Not just organizationally, but individually. Like, is it, is it a vertically obsessed one? That if we're honest, requires almost nothing of us other than that we participate in, like, religious rituals? Or is it the Jesus version that actually pushes us to move into our world with acts of sacrificial love and grace. And I'm telling you, the version that we choose is a big deal because so much hangs in the balance. I would argue as a dad that the faith of my kids and my grandkids hangs in the balance. And I, I mean, I say that because in my experience, the upcoming generations have less patience than any previous generation I'm aware of for religious games. They are looking at us going, does this Jesus thing make a difference in your life and a difference in the world? And if it doesn't, they're checking out because they want to be a part of something that makes them more alive and that makes the world a better place. So before I let you go, I want to just challenge you to begin asking yourself what all those people were asking John the Baptist, that question that ensured that their eyes were wide open, that they, that they were ready for the coming of the Messiah. And it's a question, just four words. We already looked at it. What should we do? What should we do? In other words, and I'll pull it forward for us because now we live on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection, but what should we do in response to the grace we've been shown and the forgiveness we've received in Jesus? What should we do?
And to be fair, doing is messy and doing is costly. But see, doing is also life-changing and joy-activating. And a whole bunch of us in the room would say, absolutely, because we're in a rhythm of doing that as individuals and as a community. I mean, ask Cami Bosco about the work she does at Sibley. It has brought so much joy into her life. And so one of the things we do around here is we are intentionally, as an organization, looking to give ourselves away to release some of the light of Jesus into our world in ways that people can see. Because we want people to know the Jesus that we know and to love the Jesus that we love. And so, so John the Baptist told people, essentially, he wanted them to do in the world what God was about to do for the world. And a whole bunch of them accepted the invitation. So like, I, guess what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is like, believers in Jesus didn't really change the world. It's the doers that changed the world. The, the men and the women who put the love and grace and generosity of God on display because people were drawn to the light of their lives a light that illuminated how things were supposed to be. So why would any modern rational person choose to follow Jesus? I would argue first, because there really was a literal historical resurrection that not only changed the world, but validated everything else Jesus said and done and led to the Bible being assembled. But the second reason I would argue is because following Jesus, not, not just believing in Jesus, but actually following Jesus, will lead you into the most satisfying life imaginable because it's the life that God designed for you, a life that isn't all about you, but a life where you participate in his work by giving yourself away one step at a time. All right, we're gonna, um, we'll, we'll stop there. We'll pick it up uh, next week. And so if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand, um, and I'll close our time together in prayer. And once again this week, if you came into this space and, and you just, you like, I need to talk to somebody, I need to pray with somebody, we'd love to meet you under this screen uh, right after service, and we would, again, love to hear your story and, and offer a prayer over you. But for the rest of us, let me close our time together. Heavenly Father, thank you for preserving the disturbing message of John the Baptist and as it stirred people back then who deep down knew that their faith was supposed to be more than just beliefs, I pray that it would stir in us as well. That you would stir us out of apathy, you would stir us out of complacency. Or if we're already actively giving ourselves away, we would just be encouraged that this is the way of Jesus. A way of self-sacrifice and a way through which this world becomes a little more like you want it to be. Thank you for trusting us with that mission. Thank you for believing in us, even when we don't believe in ourselves. Thank you for grace and forgiveness when we fail. And most of all, we thank you for your son, our savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part three of Why Follow.